forgive, which each week will become a little bit more clear, and when we get to the Palm Sunday presentation, it will become magnificently clear. Uh, Today, we'll be looking at slavery and the fight against it through history. And yes, it it has been with us for a long time, and sadly, it is still with us in different guises. Um, But at some point, uh, man first had the notion that it was not okay. And one of the first people to articulate that, albeit mildly compared to folks who followed later, was George Fox, founder of the Society of Friends. And in both tracts and correspondences that he wrote, first in 1657, and then again after he visited Barbados in 1671 and saw slaves, African slaves, working the plantations in Barbados, that he felt that it was improper for members of the Society of Friends to participate in that, and he wrote about it. So here's a little bit in specificity what George Fox had to say about the idea of how a a master should take care of his servants, because in that day they didn't use the term slaves. They, uh, They referred to all servants, whether they were indentured or outright slaves, as just servants. But George Fox felt it important to educate the servants in the church and as well that they shouldn't have to serve an entire lifetime, no more than 30 years. So that was considered humane and also uh, rather heretical to those who own slaves. But he felt that Christ died for all of us, no matter what our, our hue and whatever our background, so long as we came to Christ that uh, we were worthy of redemption and should not be enslaved. A colleague of George Fox's, a gentleman named William Edmondson, uh, went to visit, among other places, Newport, Rhode Island, which in the 1670s was a central point for the slave trade, specifically for the ships that carried the slaves on the triangular trade across the Atlantic. And recently in Rhode Island, they just passed a measure that Indians, the Native Americans, uh, were to be treated humanely and not subjected to slavery. So when Edmondson saw how the blacks were treated, he posed to them uh, in their faces, why then not the Negro? Some of you perhaps have seen drawings like this, essentially uh, human sardines, as many as 500 or more in a ship. And that's how they were carried from Africa to ports in the Caribbean or the southern Atlantic colonies usually. But that slave trade, the, the boats were chiefly out of the Rhode Island area. And again, Edmondson took them on directly, saying that it was against God to, to do this. It didn't spark any changes, but it's one of the first cries of conscience um, on the matter uh, in the Western world. Meanwhile, in 1681, a converted Quaker by the name of William Penn petitioned the new king for repayment of a debt that was owed to his father. His father had been an admiral and had loaned the crown money in a time of need, and now William Penn wanted to make good on that. And one of the wrinkles was that William Penn agreed to collect all of the um, sects and uh, smaller religions that were causing trouble in Europe and give them a safe haven. So. Um, in his frames of government, in the, in the constitutions, essentially, that he set up, because he was proprietor, it was 
entirely uh, his land. He could do with it what he wanted so long as he paid the king, uh, the, the crown an annual small fee. Um, he, he set up the rules. So religious freedom was, uh, it was part of his conception and his execution. And in doing so, um, he marketed himself to places in Germany and uh, the Netherlands and such, trying to interest folks there who were otherwise being persecuted because they weren't Catholic or Augsburg slash Lutheran, um, that they could go to the New World and be able to practice their religion to their heart's content. So in the 1670s, 1680s, especially after he got this grant, Penn traveled from England to these areas in Europe and found quite a lot of disaffected folks, uh, whether they were from Krefeld and Mennonite or whether they were Quakers, converted Quakers like themselves, uh, like himself in the Netherlands and other places, um, he found a lot of willing ears. So this is actually a, a Rembrandt painting uh, a little bit earlier, this is in the 1640s. Um, but this was the type of dress that was typical of both the Mennonites and the Quakers on the continent at the time. Whole families and whole villages uh, decided to take Penn up on his offer. Um, Penn was, among many things, uh, including a visionary, he was also a real estate huckster, in a good sense, in that he had an untold amount of land and he wanted to live well, so he needed to sell parcels of it, and those who were wishing to escape persecution were only too willing to consider buying hundreds or thousands of acres at a time. So among the peoples who came over in the early 1680s, uh, they would arrive on a ship like this. This is actually one of the Dutch, I'm sorry, just dropped out, Rich. Um, it, this is one of the Welsh ships arriving but no matter where they were coming from, in 1682, 1683, 1684, there was no city of Philadelphia. There was nothing. 1682, there wasn't even a building there uh, to note it. So for months at a time, new arrivals lived in earthen caves that they carved out with their bare hands, or maybe a shovel if somebody was that smart uh, to have brought one, um, earthen caves, uh, because it was close to a, a fresh water source and somewhat protected. But um, until they could survey land and get out to it and clear some of it and build uh, a lean-to or a log cabin that many of our earliest ancestors arriving here, if they came through Philadelphia, lived in earthen caves for months. Families crowded in there, businesses, grog houses, um, and ultimately William Penn said enough is enough and they had them filled in. But Again, th this was the reality. People having left the comforts, relative comforts of Europe um, to try and find a new Eden, to try and find a place to uh, practice their faith as they would see fit, and here they're living in dirt. But they were free. So for many, it was a new Eden. One of the more interesting people who I hope you can take away from uh, today's talk will be Francis Daniel Pastorius. Uh, he is German, although he himself wouldn't call himself German because they didn't have Germany then. He was from the Rhine Valley, uh, so he was either Rhinish or uh, Palatinite. And his father was Lutheran, he had a grandfather who was Catholic. This is all uh, just post what we would call the Thirty Years' War, which ended in the 1640s. He was born a few years later. But 
Central Europe was so devastated by that conflict that, for instance, a food that was brought over from the Americas soon after Columbus and uh, those who followed was brought back to Europe was the potato. Okay, it was eaten in North America. However, in Europe, the potato was, was not something that humans wished to associate with, and so they, they would use it solely for fodder for their pigs. Um, however, during the Thirty Years' War, that had armies of tens of thousands moving across um, and crushing and eating everything in sight, that uh, in, just in order to subside that uh, anybody uh, would eat anything at that point, and the potato actually entered the, the human diet. All that's a little backstory, but Pistorius was one of the most learned men um, of his age. Um, he went to multiple universities and was fluent in numerous languages, and if he'd stayed, um, he would have been one of those people in the history books of Europe. However, because he was a converted Quaker, and Quakers were not very welcome in Germany, what we would call Germany, um, he decided to be one of the leading edge people and go over uh, representing a consortium of people from Frankfurt uh, to buy land. Well, a, a few weeks after he arrived, um, a boatload of Mennonites from uh, nearby along the Rhine River arrived, not part of his uh, original uh, vision, but because he spoke German, they spoke German, they decided to align their efforts. And uh, Pastorius went to William Penn and said, we would like to have contiguous lands rather than uh, was originally sold, some to them, some to us, and ultimately an agreement was reached and territory about six miles from where Philadelphia was, was being created uh, was sold um, in a huge 15,000 acre parcel to these two groups of Germans that united and created Germantown. This is Pastorius's map that was done in a cave um, as they were allotting uh, portions to who's gonna be where with a main street to be created and such. So this is all in the early 1680s. And this is one of the indentured servant contracts that Pastorius had with uh, one of the people who worked for him. Now, among the, the realities of employment in that day and age uh, would be that if you were a second son, if you were a third or you know, lower on the totem pole son, you weren't going to see any inheritance. So if you wanted to uh, find and make your own future, um, you would often uh, sign on with somebody else um, as an apprentice of sorts. For those who didn't have money to take the passage from Europe to America, they would sign an indenture. And for that, uh, the person who was buying their services would uh, pay for their passage, their, their transport, and then until they turned 21, 25, or even 30, that they would be a servant to the person who'd paid for uh, their ship fare. And in return, they would get to learn a trade, they would get a uh, roof over their head and food, but uh, essentially, for a fixed amount of time, they were all but a slave to the master. But it was a contract, so it, it was not quite the same as slavery, and it wasn't based on race, it was just based on economics, those who had a need, those who had, had the means. And this is one of the contracts for an indentured servant that Daniel Pastorius had. Well, 
within three years of Germantown being created out of wilderness with that main street and the first houses, that De uh, Francis Daniel Pistorius and three of his colleagues became alarmed at what they saw happening uh, chiefly with the uh, Quakers in nearby Philadelphia, and that was that African slave labor, not indentured servants, but uh, human beings that were being perpetually kept in bondage uh, were entering the workforce, and for a variety of reasons, including moral objections, um, they didn't feel comfortable with it. So these four gentlemen, Pistorius, Gerhard Hendricks, Abraham Optengraf, and his brother Dirk, the four of them wrote and signed the first official petition to abolish slavery. And to, when they did that, they took it to their monthly meeting, uh, because even as uh, they weren't all Quakers, they convened with the Quakers, they, they worshiped with the Quakers. The monthly meeting referred it ultimately up to the yearly meeting, which was held in Philadelphia, and the yearly meeting said it was uh, a matter of great weight and decided that they needed more reflection on it, as good Quakers do. Um, this, now fading, this is the copy of their petition. It's written in English, it's rather archaic English, um, and in fact, I believe on the handout sheet that you have, um, at the very bottom of it um, is a, a lengthy quotation, and there's a capitalized word in there that begins with N. That's the German word for black. Um, they, they weren't being disparaging, but just like Schwarzenegger means blacksmith in Austrian and German, N-E-G-E-R-S just meant blacks. So I, I opted not to change it. I figured that we were all adults um, and it was not meant in a derogatory fashion. Um, but in English, in 1688, these four gentlemen said that, that slavery was a sin against God and should be abolished. And they were formally asking the Society of Friends to, to join them and make that proclamation. The Society of Friends punted. They passed, they said, we'll, we'll think about it, we'll get back to you later. Meanwhile, um, within the same geography, um, just a few miles away on the other side of the Schuylkill River was a Welsh collection of Quakers in what they called Marion. This meeting house for the Quakers was built in 1695. The following year, in 1696, a Quaker preacher who lived there, Cadwallader Morgan, both good Welsh names, um, he too offered up reasons why slavery was wrong. Now, this is kind of comical uh, to me in that he's saying that um, if he chooses a bad slave, the slave might either run away or if I'm away, he might try and do something with my wife or the women of the household. So um, for those reasons that slavery should be done away with. But again, in the very uh, modest history of uh, people formally saying that slavery is wrong, this is one of the earliest. Well, it took the Society of Friends from 1688 when it was first formally asked of them to uh, come out in favor of abolishing slavery. From 1688 to 1776. Took them 88 years to get to that point where as an organization, the 
the Society of Friends was calling for the abolition of slavery. Now, for most of us, what we remember, what we were taught in history, is that the Society of Friends, Quakers, were the first and the foremost abolitionists. It is true, but it also has the backstory that we just went over, that um, yes, on the eve of the American Declaration of Independence, that the Society of Friends was the first organization, the first religion to step forward and say that slavery was wrong and should be abolished, it, it took the better part of a century, just under 90 years, for them to get to that point. And between 1696 and Cadwallader Morgan's letter and 1776, there were all kinds of incremental steps whereby uh, at this yearly meeting, uh, we will discourage our members from participating in the slave trade, or ultimately, um, we will not allow them to be in leadership or things like that. But it, it was not an easy or direct route for them to get from the petition in 1688 to the outright stance that we uh, now remember them for. Now, of course, they, they were the first in 1776 to make that break with uh, past practice. And come the 19th century, um, as America was still conflicted about uh, this peculiar institution, as it was labeled, uh, that Quakers were among the, the best and the brightest when it came to articulating uh, the humanity of all. And they were our leading abolitionists, but it took them a while to get there. They got there before anybody else, uh, but for me, I, I like the gray area that, that uh, kind of fills in between the black and the white. So, in England, um, they, they took note of, they had Society of Friends members there, they had friends, um, of what was being said, and then with the American Revolution, what was done here. But they also took note of a rather open hypocrisy, if you will, um, that Americans could be accused of, that we have these high ideals in first our declaration, and then we have our, our laws uh, coming down from our constitution, and yet America doesn't have freedom for all of its citizens as it would otherwise proclaim on paper. So. William Pitt, the younger, and William Wilberforce, among others, were uh, in the late 19th, I'm sorry, late 18th century, the people who picked up the idea and politically, and it took them a long time there too, uh, were the ones who ultimately uh, brought British society to the realization that slavery was a stain on them, that as much money as Liverpool and Manchester and other port towns might get from it, as much as it contributed to the economy, that it was at a, a cost that was just too dear for the, the soul of British society. So uh, Wilberforce uh, worked, it was, took 26 years from the first time that it was introduced um, in 1781 until finally in 1807 that outright slavery was fully abolished in Britain. A couple years ago, a film came out that is all about William Wilberforce and that, that era, so if you haven't seen the film Amazing Grace, uh, look for it on DVD, it should be at the library or, or certainly on Netflix. Um, as an historian, uh, yes, there might be a few anomalies, but go with it, it's fun, it, it's it, very uplifting. And it also interpolates the uh, interpolates um, the uh, slave ship captain 
turned abolitionist who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Uh, we'll be talking about him in uh, two weeks. Okie doke. Now, all this is ancient history, but it, uh, it has relevance, relevance and resonance today because, what do you know, there is still slavery. There is still um, a crying need for people to step forward and help free the bonds that hold our brethren back. Uh, as those of you who are critical consumers of the mass media might realize in the last week, if you're online at all, um, even if you're watching the major evening news, you might have seen something like this arrive. Well, last Monday, one week ago tomorrow, a video was released and it went viral around the globe. It's an activist group called Invisible Children that is drawing attention to the gentleman in the foreground of the graphic, Joseph Coney, and the army of children, of kidnapped children, that uh, he's created in Central Africa, first in Uganda, now in, I believe, the Congo, um, and all the awful things that he's done over the course of 20 plus years. So Invisible Children has created a campaign, uh, first in the media and then working with politicians to try and have this gentleman, I use that term lightly, arrested. Uh, he is the number one wanted fugitive from the International Criminal Court in The Hague, The Hague. Um, and so with this exposure that uh, they are trying to end the slavery, enslavement by him that is happening to small children, teens, in Central Africa. So in April, um, you will wake up one morning and there will be posters on light poles, on sidewalk. There, there will be all kinds of stuff happening and civil activism and social justice groups will be out to plaster the, the, the world with this kind of paraphernalia. So you're getting a foretaste of it now, um, but the overall point being uh, that human bondage is something that, that sorrowfully is still with us and it's not just in Africa. So, for me, reading something like this, which, again, these are four Germans writing in English um, about a principle that they, they don't have a dog in the fight. It's not, they're, it's not as if they are advocating on their own behalf. They are not an enslaved people, but they see this injustice, and they, st have, they step forward then to say it is wrong, and here's why it's wrong. I mean, it's the golden rule taken uh, and expanded upon and, and written in be more beautiful language, uh, but they recognize the humanity um, in their neighbor, and they want that neighbor to have the same freedoms that they do, and that in Europe, they couldn't practice their, their religion, but in America they can. However, um, in Europe, uh, they, they were not slaves as they were now being uh, brought here to the colonies. And what can we do about it? Well, in the present tense, your very church, this very room, is going to be part of an effort to create awareness and to stop the s human bondage that happens here in Ohio. Betty Meyer and the Mission Ministry are hosting, sponsoring, putting together 
a human uh, trafficking awareness training seminar. It's for professionals, so this room will be filled with social workers and nurses and police from all the departments in the county and representatives from all the churches in our presbytery. And uh, it'll be for uh, their continuing ed education credits and also to foster the, the discussion between agencies and, and personnel such that the several thousand people that are estimated here in Ohio to be in bondage, whether they're children, whether they're young girls taken off the street, um, whether they're uh, working in fields, um, out in Alliance or whatever, that, that human trafficking, slavery by any other name, is a reality for us um, even in the 21st century. So from 1657 to now, same issues keep coming up. Yes, Jerry. Absolutely. Are you going to get to uh, talking about what they're doing? That 60 million kids in Africa, that's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. They can't be all sex slaves. There's got to right. be some other things that they're making them do. Um, in terms of present tense, uh, my understanding is that uh, worldwide, most slaves are used in sweatshop type situations that, um, or working fields. That even in Florida, uh, every now and then we'll come across a, uh, a headline where uh, workers have protested. They're essentially in a company town. They've been brought in from Guatemala or wherever and have no connection to the larger world around them. They're, they're just working under the, the bright lights, if not the actual whip of a modern day slave master. Um, and, and they live on site. And so th there, are, there are situations like that, maybe not in every state, but in most states, and they're off the radar until something untoward happens. Um, and to meet with local law enforcement and to get their quick assessment of, yes, it's real, um, and whether it's online predators that some folks might be worried about or whether it's um, just somebody walking home from school and getting nicked and then falling off of society's uh, radar screen, but moved around for sex purposes. That, that there, there's a variety of industries that they seem to be um, put to work in, including nail salons. Um, th there's, there's a whole Asian subculture that uh, not only operates a lot of nail salons, but a large percentage of, or a significant percentage of the employees there are, are undocumented and uh, are, are otherwise there in hopes of getting to stay in America, but it, it's all part of some Ponzi scheme, and in essence, they are being enslaved, all, albeit you know, with running water and electricity um, instead of you know li living in a shack, but not much better. I could just keep, um, give you an example. Um, we think of that human trafficking in terms of women and young children. Oh, I'm aware of it because my sister is helping write legislation to um, stop some of this. There was a case of close to 100 men from India, men, grown men, who signed on to come to this country to be welders. Um, the company that brought them here enslaved them, put them in um, a barracks, 
and they were actually working on welding for the U.S. Navy. It wasn't the Navy that hired them, but the Navy had the contract. Um, and the only way that their situation was found out was that the company hired a bus to take them all to a Walmart to do shopping with the company money, and um, passing the going to the Walmart, one of the men noticed that they passed a church. He recognized it as a church building. A couple days later, a small riot broke out in the barracks, and that man was able to escape and went to the church, told them what was going on, and got referred to Southern Poverty Law Center, one of those who referred them. Off, this was all the way from Alabama, up, then up to New Jersey, where several of the men went to seek asylum. But you know, you think of it in terms of helpless children and women, but these were men who were brought here with the promise of, you can go to the U.S., get some money, bring your family over. Once they got here, their passports were taken from them, and their every move, basically, was controlled. So um, it, it's not difficult to get enslaved. Yes, Jack. What's the humane way to balance uh, the issue of infringement of personal rights uh, with undocumented aliens uh, who have come into this country and, on the one hand, and identifying those who are genuinely deprived of liberty as a consequence of being here? Because certainly there are some illegal aliens who would not perceive themselves to be in this role, uh, how, do we, how do we find the difference? How, how is law enforcement and government and agencies uh, to discern the difference without overstepping civil liberties of, of the people who are involved? It's a great question. Um, and it's an interest which I've had in being uh, one of the people who's gone out to local law enforcement to alert them to what we're doing here on the 21st of April and to get their buy-in and to work with the FBI office around the corner. Um, most everybody, in response to a question that I've put to them, much like Jack's question here, is they want to serve these people humanely, um, the, the illegals. The, the most law enforcement is aware precisely where illegal aliens might be living. But if the conditions if there's, if there's no laws being broken, they don't want to call in immigration. Uh, the, lo the local police do not. Um, th they, will, they will mediate the fights, they will make sure that people get uh, proper medical attention, but they don't want to get in um, and otherwise try and figure out, you know, was this child born here but the parents aren't and all that stuff. So long as the sub-societies whether they're Guatemalan or, or other, are minding their own business and not creating havoc in the larger community that it seems like law enforcement is giving them space because by and large they are providing a necessary role in the region's economy. It might not be a glamorous one, but they're doing it and have been doing it now, some of them, for se several generations. Um, but it, it's, it's a, it's a tough call and, and they seem, the, the law enforcement I talked to seem to wrestle with it quite a bit. Um, that the, They want to serve the individual, they're not checking to, to see uh, their, their papers and you know, they can figure out that the police have been around and whether they're told or not, they, they, can, they can assess a situation as to what somebody's status is and they don't want to go there. Um, yes, you had a question in the back? 
like to commend you all. Thank you. Commend you all for what you're doing. And make the point, if I can, of the historical importance of what you're doing as a witness to the future. <clears throat> a few miles north of here, close to Alliance, there was the largest African-American settlement in the north in the early first decade of the 20th, second, second particular decade of the 20th century. Quakers from Hanoverton and Methodists from Alliance uh, worked to minister to them. They brought them Bibles, they taught them to read, they brought them food and this sort of thing. So what you're doing, I think, speaks so highly of your church and uh, that you're, I believe, giving a witness to the future. I was, thank you, John. Um, I hadn't planned when I was putting this particular portion of the five-week course together to include this because I didn't know in the research that I'd done about this gentleman, Cadwaller Morgan. I mean, I, I knew his name, but I didn't know that um, in 1696 that he'd written a formal protest letter to his church, to his meeting, saying that slavery was bad. Um, he was just somebody in a genealogy genealogical chart for me because what do you know this little meeting house is where I grew up worshiping um, I lived five doors six doors down from it um, and so wh when I had a genuine reason to include it I put it in but um, it it was not expected when I was working on it last week that I was going to have something that relates most directly to the stuff that I, I research and write usually is it still there? yeah it, it is Short of anything, perhaps in New Mexico, it is the oldest continuous house of worship in North America. Yeah. It is seven miles from Center City, Philadelphia, in Marion or Marion Station, Pennsylvania. So the main line, if that means anything, um, it's where the Barnes Foundation Museum used to be. They just are moving it to Central Philadelphia. Again, for me, this gentleman, Pastorius, is an astonishing, gifted man. He, 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 the multilingual stuff, he's, he's a trained lawyer, and he elects to go to the New World, which when he gets there, people are living in caves. Now, he doesn't know this necessarily when he agrees to go in 1683, but that's the reality. And yet, he's got a, a vision both for personal freedom and religious uh, liberties, and I guess for urban planning, because Germantown that he laid out is much the same. But whatever, whatever your, your genetic stream might be, if, if any of your peoples came through Philadelphia in the latter half of the 17th century, that's what they endured. And whether it was for two weeks or 12 months, um, they did it, and they did it in part because they were free to do it. Whereas in Europe, if you weren't Catholic and on the Catholic side of some prince's border, 
or Lutheran and on the other side of a, a Duke's border, um, you didn't have freedom of conscience. You could not worship as you would see fit. Um, you could be stripped naked. You could be uh, denied your right to vote. You could be thrown in jail. You could be beaten. Not every single day, perhaps, but you know that was the, the, the general tone for nonconformists. Um, and yet, for them, this, as a way station, was, was welcome because nobody was telling them what to do. And uh, for Pastorius, a man of letters, to come and, and establish a tone and early, before anybody was talking about human rights and the dignity of every man, no matter what their creed, what their color, that he was a chief force in moral thought, to me, it's, it's ennobling and humbling at the same time to encounter a person like that. Because for me, as an historian, as a novelist, but chiefly as an historian, I feel like I am a steward, that all of these lives that I come in contact with in the research, that they, they are three-dimensional to me. And for, for, for that moment that they come alive, that they become uh, under my care, and the only thing that, that I can do to honor them <coughs> is to share them, whether it's in books, whether it's in talks, so that other people have a like appreciation of the dignity, or sometimes the indignity, that um, has gone on in the journey that brings us to where we are today. So I'm happy for this opportunity. Yes, Jim. Andrew, I, I think we're, we particularly appreciate your um, historical reference and the timeline that you present and how this is, you know, basically you've presented a couple centuries of, of a timeline in this struggle. Uh, and as you got to William Wilberforce in the early 1800s, I began to think of, of a book that I read I think for the first time in my life last summer, and it was written by an author who operated in the 1800s, uh, Mark Twain. Um, I read the book Huckleberry Finn, and I read it just because I happened to pick it up last summer, and I thought, well, I don't think I've ever read this, or at least not read the whole book, so I'm going to read the book. After I finished that book, as I was ruminating around on the internet, I found a quote by Ernest Hemingway that said that it was the finest book ever written by an American author, and nothing else that was ever written by an American author comes even close to Huckleberry Finn. So I took the occasion to read it a second time because I thought, I better study up a little bit more and, and figure out why Hemingway thought this. So I researched what Mark Twain was trying to accomplish with that book. It was written in a setting of 1840. It wasn't written until the 1880s, after the Civil War, after the slaves had been freed, and we'd, we'd had Abraham Lincoln and his work and the Emancipation Proclamation and all of that. And the story, of course, can be read on many levels. It, it can be a, just a, an adventure story, and it is a pretty dandy adventure story, but it's also the relationship of Huckleberry Finn and the slave, 
the runaway slave, Jim, who became a, a, a friend to Huckleberry Finn and a defender, and they defended each other. Twain was trying to say to America, you wrote a Declaration of Independence, you wrote a Constitution, you fought the bloodiest war in history, it's time to measure up and to live what you say you're going to live. A profound book when it's read at, at that level. And, and it was the best thing I've ever done to read it the second time with that template in mind. So when we think about the story of human trafficking and slavery, think of all the different layers of work that people have done. And Mark Twain himself was conflicted when he wrote the book. He took a two-year hiatus halfway through the book because he didn't know how he needed to end the book. He was in torment as he, as he studied and thought for those two years, set it aside, thought that he wouldn't ever finish it, and the critics panned it for several years after it was published, even though he was a fairly famous guy by then. Uh, but it was, it's a compelling book. It's, it's well worth anybody's time to read it with that perspective. A question that I've been kind of just mulling around in my mind since last Sunday was, um, because I heard um, people even after um, the class, and Terry and I talked about, you know, what, what was it that enabled or motivated, I guess is a better word, the people that you talked about last week, what was it that made those people <coughs> step out and do something um, what was it that made Mark Twain or these people that you're talking about step up and do something? And what is it that keeps us from stepping up and doing something? So I don't know if you have more class to teach, but if there's some time for I would just like to hear some other people's reflection on that. That is the, the central question that the series tries to examine, and I'll certainly pass this on to anybody, John included, uh, to contribute, but Father Forgive um, will be, the title will be fully explained in the fifth and final uh, chapter on Palm Sunday, but in essence, I've tried to, to identify people in situations where injustice and inhumanity is, is apparent, and there are some who boldly step up realizing that their position could endanger their own well-being, but they, they feel the, the strength to do it. They feel that um, if they don't, that they will be worse off. So whether it's, I can never pronounce his last name, but Paul, the hotel manager from the story that became Hotel Rwanda, who stayed. He got his, his wife, who was uh, Tutsi, out, but he stayed and sheltered over a 1,000 people um, in a time of, of mania where 800,000 people died in just weeks in face-to-face -face brutality in Rwanda. Um, and there were probably people who stood up to that horror only to be cut down 
um, by a 13-year-old with a machete or an AK-47. So there are individual acts of heroism that we don't know about because the people don't survive. But, um, and you know, now there's campaigns like Coney 2012 to make this person the most famous of infamy um, of the 21st century such that he can't leave his rebel stronghold. He can't leave the jungles that he's currently hiding out in and that he will be taken to The Hague and he will be tried under law um, and uh, whatever punishment is deemed appropriate, he will then serve and it will also serve as a signal to the rest of the world that we, we do not tolerate this. And what we're going to do with Syria um, or for Syria is a, a contemporary question that I, I know that I wrestle with every night when I see uh, a fresh clip on the news. Um, as an individual, there's not a whole lot, but there was one individual who had this idea, and now it's a, it's a campaign, and there's millions of people who are aware of it and invested in a, in a good outcome. So I like to think that when we are presented with these moral conundrums, these, these vexing questions of, of, of evil, that bravely, even with trepidation, that we do step forward and try aspirationally to live the faith that we you know, talk so easily about on Sunday to try and apply it to the rest of the week when there's, there's genuine visceral challenges to it. Um, Jerry and then John. Is this working? I think so. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, one of my answers to your question would be why that we don't is that we have piled up laws and laws and laws and those policemen out there they don't want to get involved in all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so they're going to just take care of the blood and thunder do not get me involved in government stuff for the next five years and and that's i wouldn't get involved with that kind of stuff for just that reason i don't want to spend my next five years in court If I may gently dissent from Dr. Smith just a bit here. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jane, I think what it requires is a passion. And Martin Luther King faced laws, but that didn't keep him back. Um, Mark Twain had a passion for telling the truth. His greatest work, I think, was a war prayer, and he said it's not to be published during my lifetime because only dead men can tell the truth. If you have a passion to tell the truth, you're gonna offend a lot of people, and you've gotta to learn to be gentle and not accuse anybody, but you've gotta have a passion to tell the truth and believe truth matters and not do it to shoot people down but do it because so we can hopefully be better to believe you've got to believe what you say not be a phony i think um, i'm helping somebody here in canton work on a history book for 
the history of African Americans in Canton. And one of the photographs that we came across is from 1962. And not quite sure where it is, whether it's at McKinley High or Malone College at the time. It's an auditorium filled with 20-somethings, maybe teenagers, but a whole rainbow collection of young Americans. And Canton was one of the collection points for people who were volunteering to be freedom riders. So th this whole auditorium full of heretofore total strangers united in a cause, ready to get on buses to head down to help register people to vote. Now, obviously, you can do the math. I wasn't around then. But w when I see a photograph like that, and I see uh, you know, my peers, or in this case, you know, could be my kid's age, um, who are, are full of hope um, and are willingly giving of their time and their energy to a cause that, okay, some in the, in the audience were African-American, so it, it had a first-person quality for them, the, the civil rights movement. Most of the audience was generic Caucasian of whatever European background. Um, they were doing it because they believed in fighting for a principle, and they were getting instruction on how to disobey civilly, um, and they're, they're getting on buses to head on down and play their role in the, un, in the developing narrative. Now, to see footage of, of that relative era and a few years before, where you have uh, German shepherds baring their teeth, being barely, uh, you know, uh, being held on leash in front of little schoolgirls in their cotton dresses. Um, that was a flashpoint in, in our nation's narrative. And amazingly, um, there were people who responded with love and a belief in the, the humanity of all. Um, and largely, that kind of naked hatred has subsided from our discourse and from, uh, well, from, from the public stage. And I, I like to think, you know, whether it's the Coney 2012 effort that looks at a problem across the globe from us and sees it as a reflection on us that we need to, to wipe away, um, or other issues. I, I like to see, I like to think that individually and collaboratively that we do <coughs> respond in faith um, to these situations, even if, as with the Quakers, beginning in 1688, it might take a fair bit of time to build a consensus because they wanted to be unanimous and make sure that they weren't alienating anybody. But of course, um, not everybody was pleased with the decision that came down in 1776, but rightly so, we look fondly on the Quakers today as being the leading edge of abolition, um, in certainly in America, and if you look at the timeline, uh, in the world. Uh, you had a question? It seems to me that history tells us that when one speaks out against injustice, one of the problems that's faced is that the uh, larger community does not see it as injustice. And oftentimes the status quo is given the imprimatur of God, so the person who's speaking in, against injustice is also speaking against God. I remember sitting in this church, listening to the early days of Martin Luther King. He was viewed as a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. He was viewed as someone who was uh, a communist, and a real difficult person, and not very much approved by Christ Presbyterian Church at that time. Well, reading his letters from a Birmingham jail uh, certainly changed my 
opinion on that situation, but I think this is characteristic of people who speak against injustice. They're first viewed as speaking against God, and because they're speaking against the status quo, and we give that, God's imprimatur. Excellent point. Uh, Jack had a, something to add. It is. Yeah, it's on. Is it on? Yes. Yeah. The, um, the period in history that you talk about had another critical dimension, and it was the sanctuary movement. And it was at that same time that uh, Bill Clark, a member of this church, long time, and um, um, the Gibbs was the preacher, Bill Gibbs, um, they began the sanctuary movement, which was to provide opportunities for such folks to find a safe haven from the kind of over-oppressive law enforcement that could well have come upon them. And that movement moved uh, from here to Phoenix. And uh, for all I know, it may still be going on. John Fife is the man. Yeah, that's it, John Fife, excuse me. It wasn't Bill Gibbs, yes. Again, um, one of the things uh, that was a recurrent discussion after last week's class was, can you find any Presbyterians to celebrate? <laughs> you know, there's all these Quakers and a couple Lutherans thrown in there, um, which is why I, I was so happy to be able to include in this, uh, in the larger arc, in the larger story of our engagement with the practice of putting down other people, of putting you know, chains upon them, literally or metaphorically, that because of one person's passion here, Betty Meyer, um, who attended a workshop um, at the, I think it was PCUSA, had something, and she and Pastor Wendy had gone to that, and Betty attended uh, human trafficking awareness training and was shocked at, at the variety of guises that it still um, plagues us, and that e even here in Ohio, and the numbers are, are all rough guesstimates, but you know, at least 3,000 uh, people, uh, perhaps more. Toledo is one of the leading places for human trafficking in all of North America, strangely, Toledo. Um, but she came back from that experience uh, wanting to galvanize people's attention. And so you know, one, one of your peers is uh, the primary engine for why Christ Presbyterian Church, uh, stepped forward, volunteered, went to the Presbyterian, said, we want to do this. They said, okay. Um, and now, you know, we're getting all of the, the necessaries together for accreditation for those professionals who are coming that they can uh, get eight hours worth of uh, continuing ed units. Um, but it, 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 it's all because in seeing injustice that we look for opportunities to, to challenge it, to change it. And so, in part, that's an underlying theme for both these past two episodes and the next three uh, lectures, um, that how, how can we respond? How do we respond when we are presented with something that is so against um, our faith? And the answer for, for many of these people who <coughs> I've come to embrace is that we respond with faith. I've got a question in the back. Go Karen, go Karen.
week, but there's an amazing book called Disposable People that came out, I believe in 2006, and that was the first book that really opened my eyes to all this stuff. And one topic we're gonna have to get to, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable or not, is that we, as consumers of s way too many goods, <laughs> as Americans, um, whether we need, to we need to face the fact that our habits, our consumer habits, fund a lot of the dispose this human trafficking issue. Um, you know, there's the sexual slave part you've talked about and, and um, other aspects of it, but, but you did touch on a minute ago, the sweatshops. I mean, and when after I read that book, I just was like, I was just amazed at like, I couldn't shop for even new shoes for like months because I just was like, how do you buy a pair of shoes that you know has not contributed to, to all of this? And so um, it's gonna get, and it should get heavy on our conscience. But this is one of the, th the things, if we're really going to make a difference, it's not just who's our leader and, and let's, you know, politically do things, it's who, who are we and what decisions do we make every day that could make a difference? Absolutely. In closing, um, ours is a nation, first among any, that was founded not by the force of arms, but by the force of ideas. Yes, we needed to, f to defend those ideas and those ideals, and we have since, but we are, we are not a tribe, we are not um, a, a single ethnic group. We are a, a whole diverse range that come together under one flag of ideas. And in 1876, when Bartholdi um, brought over this little bit, and now, you know, 10 years after that, it got put in the New York Harbor, it is yet uh, another, it's a re representation of of the ideals that we set forward in our founding documents. Liberty, enlightening the world. That's the technical name of that statue. Liberty, enlightening the world. That torch is um, the shining city on the hill, or if you wanna you know, use the, the bushel metaphor, it's without the bushel. That, that what we do here, when we are at our best, is show the world how to live in love. And it comes from our Judeo-Christian Background, yes, um, and certainly as, as members of Christian faiths, that that is integral to who we are and how we express ourselves, but we are, we are always striving to get closer to that ideal. And with that, I thank you again for your time, and I look forward to exploring new things next week. Because we gotta get to class, or we gotta get to...